Today's scripture comes from Psalm 37, verses 1 through 9. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, I'm uh, Tim Kang. I'm another one of the bivocational uh, uh, elders or pastors at the church. Uh, don't worry, next week, Pastor Rob will be back. Um, so thank you, Diana, for reading uh, God's word for us. And so let us start um, appropriately with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we pray... Um, that as uh, we go through this word, your psalm, that your spirit work mightily, not through um, any uh, skill or words that are spoken by me, but rather by your spirit doing the work uh, of you in our hearts. In Jesus' Lord, let me pray. Amen. Okay, um, so as you know, we've been going through the book of Psalms for a few months now, and, and we're coming to the end of it. But, um, you know, this Psalm 37 is a, a little bit distinctive even among the Psalms as it's from an older, uh, wiser David uh, thinking back on his life. You know, he's not running from danger or he's not uh, anxious about the future. He's taking some time. He's being reflective. He's thinking about life. And he addresses some broader, timeless questions. And he talks about how we should live in light of what we know about God and what our response should be about the world around us. So some have actually argued that this psalm may have been more at home in a wisdom book, uh, like Proverbs, but nevertheless, it's in here and we are going through it. Now, David is no ordinary, older, wiser person. Uh, we've spoken fairly extensively about David or King David at New Hope, and especially from our study through the Psalms of which he wrote so many. In particular, we spoke about his character in light of his suffering. But just for our purposes, it'd be helpful, hopefully, uh, to do a little quick recap of his life, of David's life. So David is the youngest son of Jesse, an Israelite, and he was selected, even at a very early age, by the prophet Samuel, even at, uh, uh, by God, through the prophet Samuel, um, to be the king of Israel. The trouble was, there was already a king ruling the nation, and that was Saul, King Saul. But by God's divine 
providence, uh, David ends up being in the service of the king as one of Saul's court musicians and also an armor bearer. And under the, the radar a little bit, but close to the throne already, even at that very tender young age. But uh, fast forward, his breakout moment comes at his, as his, uh, this young David still is called into the front lines uh, as an armor-bearer armor and ends up famously representing Israel and killing the giant Philistine Goliath. Very famous story, I'm sure you all know. So he kills Goliath in this hand-to-hand combat, armed only with stones and a sling. And he instantly becomes a champion for the Israelite people. So he comes, becomes very popular and eventually becomes a military leader for the nation. He's then now well-liked. He's famous, popular. He has power, prestige, talent. And what, I'm, what we read, he's also good-looking. But that soon fades fast as David's popularity leads the king to become jealous. And the king plots to kill him. So David is driven running for his life. But God sends uh, people like Jonathan, which uh, is King Saul's son, to ally with David, eventually becoming instrumental in saving David's life, even as Jonathan himself dies tragically. Thankfully, King Saul eventually dies as well, and his death leads to David becoming king of the Israelite people. And once again, it seemed like David had it all. Now he's king, he has the power, riches, his enemies are vanquished, he has honor, favor, glory. By about middle age though, um, and maybe all this success blinded him, maybe it was hubris, we don't know exactly, but his eye and his heart wanders. And sin gets to him, which leads him to take the wife of another and killing her husband. So he murders, lies, adulters, covers up, and generally commits grievous, grievous sin. And David's sin leads to the death of his infant son. And David's many failures lead him to be fleeing and running once again. But this time from his older son, Absalom. But Absalom also ends up dying, so he loses family members, loses sons, loses uh, everything. So David is no older man, no ordinary older man at this point, and he's experienced the highs, he's experienced the lows from external causes of suffering as well as internal struggles with sin. And yet after all that, after seeing all that, David in the Bible is described um, as a person after God's heart, reverent, in sync with God, trusting, loving, devoted, repentant, humble, and faithful. Well, at this older age, this uh, this is when David writes this psalm, near the end of his life. In 1 Kings chapter 2, there's an account where David speaks to his son, 
Solomon, who would be the next king, and actually made famous by his own wisdom. And this may be the time where he writes this psalm to his son Solomon, based on his experiences and, and uh, through the blessings and sufferings of his life. So that sort of gives you a, a quick summary of who's writing this psalm. And last week, Pastor Alex uh, walked us through Psalm 119, which is uh, an acrostic psalm. And similarly, this psalm, Psalm 37, is also constructed as an acrostic psalm. Psalm 119, as well as this week's psalm, are two among nine acrostic psalms among the 150 chapters of the book of Psalms. And as you may remember, an acrostic psalm or an acrostic is a type of poem where each line of prose starts with a letter that either spells out a word or a message or an alphabet. And in this case, uh, Psalm 37 has 22 sections built with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So a pattern that is, uh, uh, it, there's a pattern that is used to develop the prose, which is carefully laid out and in a very deliberate structure. Again, making this an, somewhat of an unusual psalm. Uh, thank you again, Diana, for reading the chapter, um, which covered sort of the, the wisdom part of the uh, chapter. And now, this is the whole 40-verse uh, we're not going to read this out loud right now. We can't see it. <laughs> this is the whole 40-verse psalm in its entirety. Now, um, because it's in English, the Hebrew alphabet is not readily apparent, but if you read it in Hebrew, you would notice, if you can read it, each letter of the alphabet represented in twos through the whole psalm. But, and I'll show you in a minute, this is not just the visual, it's also a pattern in content. So it revolves around three themes. First is the wisdom of the righteous. Secondly, a description of evildoers and what happens to them. And third, a description of the righteous and what happens to them. So if you see from the next slide, um, this is, in green, is the wisdom part of the psalm. And then the next slide after that is the uh, uh, the, what happens to evildoers, part of the psalm in red. And then the next slide in blue is the, what happens to the righteous. So in the next slide, you can see it all together. You can see some, uh, a little bit of a pattern here. You can see that um, it goes from wisdom to evildoers to the righteous, back to wisdom, and then that reverse order again, deliberately. And similarly to other acrostic psalms, this construction is to point out the symmetry, the intentionality, the deliberate carefulness of construction that points to the gravity and the perfect intricacy of the psalm itself. Thank you, Delamar. Of course, every word of the Bible is incredibly important, uh, but the structure points to the completeness of this specific psalm itself. So, um, as with the psalm, let's look at the wisdom of the righteous, the fate of the uh, wicked and, and, uh, and, or evildoers, and the ultimate future for uh, the righteous uh, through this complete psalm. 
Now, in this next slide, I've kind of rearranged the, uh, the various sections of it so that we can see all of the righteous and the evildoers and what happens to the righteous in kind of an aggregate form. <clears throat> so first, the advice to the righteous. This slide is that uh, um, just the larger font part of it just highlights the important salient points of each phrase. So it says here, fret not, do not be envious, trust in the Lord, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, commit yourself to the Lord, bring forth righteousness, your justice, be still, wait patiently, refrain from anger, forsake wrath, wait for the Lord, turn away from evil, do good. Um, and take refuge in him. So, by my count, there are about 15 distinct pieces of wisdom and commands about how to live as a believer. Now, some of these verses are if this, then that verses, like verse 4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And others are, because of the Lord, you should do this. Commands like verse 40, where it tells us that because the Lord helps and delivers the righteous, we should take refuge in him. And others are just what you should do as a righteous believer, like fret not or don't be envious. But the overall theme is that the things that you're told to do as a believer are for your ultimate joy and benefit. Now, uh, let's go on to the evildoers. Um, same thing with the larger font. So, evildoers fade, wither, are cut off, will be no more, will not be there. They gnash their teeth. The Lord laughs at them. And their day is coming. Their swords enter their own heart. Their bows will be broken. They will perish they will vanish, they'll be cut off, cut off, cut off, passed away, no more, altogether destroyed. There are about ten verses that describe the fate of the evildoer. And the patterns are pretty apparent. Evildoers will go away, and whatever temporary riches they may enjoy will also go away as well. Not only go away, but be cut off and destroyed. Maybe not exactly now, but eventually. Now finally, let's look at the uh, description of the righteous believer or the righteous. Um, so they are to, uh, they delight in the Lord. They will inherit the land. Um, they uphold the righteous. Their heritage will remain. They have abundance. They're established by the Lord. They, their children become a blessing. They will not be forsaken. They will be preserved forever. They will inherit the land. The law of God is on their, high, uh, on their heart, and they will not slip. He will not abandon them or let them be condemned and their future is with peace, and they will have salvation that is from the Lord. 
and he will deliver them, save them, and they can take refuge in him. So there are about 15 verses uh, that describe the fate of the righteous. Joy-filled, supported, saved, not forgotten, generous, and at peace. It sounds wonderful. It sounds ideal. And if you kind of get a gist of it, it may sound a little unrealistic. To sum up the psalm then, um, it's do these things, don't worry, do good, delight in the Lord, and you will be fulfilled. And evildoers plot, scheme, hoard, and ultimately are gone. And the righteous stand to inherit the world, and his blessings will not fade. So the message is pretty clear. Don't fret or be envious of evildoers because they will fade and be gone and the righteous will be delivered and saved. Now I have to ask, if it's so black and white, why would anyone do evil? Who are evildoers? Let's look at uh, who are the evildoers or the wicked and let's look at evil. So first, what are some characteristics of the wicked or evildoers? This chapter uh, sheds some light into what evildoers do as well. They plot against the righteous, gnashing their teeth. They draw the sword, bend their bows, bring down the poor and needy, slay, borrow, but do not pay back plotting to seek to put the righteous to death and spread himself like a green laurel, which is an expression that they are living luxuriously. And importantly, this is what they don't do, which is they don't refrain from anger. They don't forsake wrath. They are not meek. They don't lend generously. They don't utter wisdom, and they don't speak justice. So to sum up, evildoers are out for themselves. They plot, violate, scheme, hoard, and seek their own pride and glory and comfort. The Bible clearly tells us that their problem is sin. But what does sin do, and how does it make one evil? So sin is the failure to keep God's law, to uphold his righteousness, thus failing to glorify and, uh, the Lord fully. So now God did not create sin, but sin entered since the first disobedience of man in Adam. And since then, uh, everyone except for Jesus was born into sin. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is enticing. They sometimes refer to Satan as the tempter. The tempter is cunning, crafty, and sin seems very logical. It bends the truth to make you question the sovereignty and the goodness of God. It tells us that we can be our own gods, that we can manufacture the truth, 
that truth is relative, that it's, it's our own doing that, that uh, we can author, and that we can have the glory of God without God. The Gospel Coalition has a, a study on sin, um, and it says this. It says, so in the beginning, God creates a good cosmos with good humans who have good relationships with him, themselves, one another, and creation. But sin enters the picture and disrupts each human relationship with God, self, one another, and creation. So sin is fundamentally against God and a failure to live as the image of God. And most fundamentally, sin must be defined as being against God. And sin entered the human experience in Adam's sin, and it is uh, an intruder to God's plan. Now, no one escapes. It leads to human guilt and condemnation. It leads to human death, corruption, suffering, and shatters relationships at every level. Pastor John Piper puts it like this. This is the most foundational meaning of sin, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for substitutes, anything we value more than God. We look at the Creator and then exchange Him for something He created. And he goes on, The definition of sin is this, any feeling or thought or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all things. So we can say the wicked or evildoers are people who pursue idols. Their affections are not aligned with God. They are bent on self, self self-preservation, self-conceit. They're short-sighted, blinded, manufacture their own truth. And even, and it's from the very beginning, so even as God told Adam that he would die if he ate from the, true, uh, the fruit of good and evil, he ate it. He knew it, and he ate. So the uncomfortable question enters now. It says, who do you identify with more? The righteous or the evildoers? Who do you see yourself as being more like? The humble person who trusts in God and suffers for his sake or the one seeking and manufacturing his own kingdom and glory. The bad news is this. Romans 3 tells us, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So as, we, as it stands, evildoers, as described uh, in the Psalms, are not devils or beasts or monsters. They can be like people just like us, like you and me. We often tell ourselves that we are the good guys. We're good. It's okay. We're the righteous. We're on the right side of truth. But on closer examination, however, you may come to a very different conclusion. Well, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. 
God's story of salvation is also displayed in this psalm. But, like a lot of areas in the Old Testament, it's a little less obvious. And even among the psalms, Psalm 37 is a little bit more ambiguous. Because in a lot of psalms, there's a but the Lord moment. A, I can't say this correctly, deus ex machina moment. Uh, Translated, God in the machine. A but the Lord moment is a moment in a narrative where you see God enter and shed light and turn a dire situation into one that is glorious and full of salvation. Remember that part in the Lord of the Rings, uh, in the last part and the end, when Frodo and Sam are in the middle of an exploding mountain and with lava all around them, they seem like goners. And then these giant eagles come and rescue them at the last moment. Now, lots of films use that kind of thing, and that's what the but the Lord moment is as well. And actually, the book of Psalms is full of them as well. And, of course, throughout the Bible, it's a countless number of them. But unlike an eagle swooping down, it's often a realization of God's greater plan for salvation and betterment of his people. As we sang just earlier, uh, and we see in Genesis, when Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his own brothers, and then jailed and went through much suffering and torment, comes to realize that even though his brothers meant for evil, God used it for good. Genesis 50, 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Well, Bringing it down to Psalm 37, in this case, when we're told about the nature of evildoers and the result of sin compared to the stark contrast of those who trust in the Lord and desire him above all, and the glorification of the righteous and obedient, we see this divide, this evil and the righteous. We see this great divide. We see our own sinful nature we see and recognize that huge gap. We cannot possibly live up to the standards of the righteous. So where's the, where the God moment? The only way that this psalm is helpful and useful and one to be meditated on is that if that gap is filled. So the hidden but God moment in the psalm is, and you guessed it, the truth of Jesus. The whole psalm is about Jesus bridging the gap. We cannot do the commands to get us to the righteous category without the mercy and justification that comes from the cross. The whole psalm is telling us how, because the great love that God has for us, that his son Jesus once and for all paid for our sins and set us right with God, through the perfect righteousness and grace on the cross. And that for anyone who believes in Jesus, that gap is closed. The psalm reminds us that Jesus became cut off like the wicked 
even though he was perfect, so that we can be justified and righteous. That's the gospel. Isaiah 53 says, Like we, uh, like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone in his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's talking about Jesus. So he makes this psalm the complete package. He bridges the gap. This acrostic psalm is not just a, a beautiful poem or a song with symmetrical beauty and patterns, but the acrostic structures are pointing to the completeness of the gospel. Speaking about the completeness of Jesus, that he is all we need. And we are told not to despair, not to envy, and not to be forlorn. So through David and this psalm, God is encouraging us to be like Jesus because Jesus is the only way that we can be the righteous. And only through him can we also be seen as righteous. So how do we respond? So what are we to do with this information? An acrostic psalm has another function. It's designed to be easily memorized. The whole psalm goes down the Hebrew alphabet, each line starting with a letter. And this, is, and this is the way you're supposed to memorize it. You know your ABCs. You know, if you're Hebrew, you know your Hebrew alphabet. And when you uh, memorize something, you look at it over and over again. You meditate on it. You reflect on it. You recite it in your mind. And as Alex told us about last week, how Lord Wilberforce uh, memorized and recited Psalm 119 on his way to work. Uh, we are to read this complete package of a psalm over and over and memorize it. The commands and wisdom of God through this older, wiser David who has gone through suffering, pain, sin, turmoil, blessing, redemption, who reminds us of the pitfalls of our evildoer. We are to meditate on that fact that we identify with more of the evildoers, that there is a gap and that there is a righteousness through Christ and that we are called to do uh, certain things by God and be like Christ. So it's not only an encouragement by us focusing on the glory waiting for the righteous through the gospel, but the Spirit himself using that meditative um, exercise transforms our very heart. You know, so as you repeatedly read the psalm, we are reminded that we are free not to seek revenge. We're free not to judge or get caught up in the minutia of one-upmanship. And we are free to seek God's justice, not our own justice. We're free to obey and help the poor, the weak, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. And we're free to proclaim boldly and praise and worship him, the one who gives us strength. We're free to confess to each other and to forgive one another. And we're free from our own self-doubt our own self-righteousness, 
and our covetous envy of others' successes. And we are free that even though we will suffer, that he can be trusted to give us our deepest desires, which is fellowship with God. So as we read, as we meditate, as we reflect, as we pray, our inner selves are transformed, renewed by the Spirit. And we start to identify more and more to the righteous. That's sanctification. We delight more and more in Jesus, in God himself. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And that's us reading the psalm, right? And reading about the gospel and understanding scripture and the word. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this is for people who have heard the scripture and the gospel and about Jesus. Now, if you have not trusted in Jesus and have not repented and accepted the gospel as a saving truth in your life and you are dismayed by the fate of the wicked, this is an invitation. This is an invitation to examine your heart, to ask him into it, and put your works, your envy, your anxiety, and your idols down and come and trust and be justified in Jesus. So as we conclude, uh, let's look back again at this wise advice from David and the commands given, but this time with confidence and not hopelessness, not despair, and not a lofty goal we can't attain, but through the lens of of Jesus and the gospel. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel completely changes how to look at these commands from God. So let me invite you to stand up. And on this last slide is the aggregate of all the wisdom commands in this Psalm 37, which is um, verse 1 through 9, as well as some of the other verses toward the end. So let's all read this together, if it's okay. Um, Hopefully everyone can read it. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Command to your Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. 
Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. The Lord helps him and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them, because they take refuge in him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for your son. And as we meditate and reflect on um, what Jesus has done on the cross, Father, we ask that you convict our hearts, that you transform our hearts, that you open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' Lord's name we pray.